0: Hello, and thank you for listening to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. In this episode, I'm joined by Jason Bresler and Jim McNamara. Those who subscribe to the podcast will surely be familiar with both Jason and Jim. But for those of you who may be tuning in for the first time, Jason is the founder and president of Leadership Under Fire and currently is a lieutenant in the FDNY. Prior to becoming a firefighter and creating the Leadership Under Fire team, Jason began his career as an officer in the U.S. Marine Corps. He's led Marines on several deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan, where he was decorated for his combat service. Jim serves as a human performance advisor for Leadership Under Fire and is the author of the LUF Senior Man's Performance Journal. And he regularly hosts Senior Man feature episodes on this podcast. Jim is an FDNY firefighter who joined the department in 1994 and currently serves in Ladder Company 26 in Harlem. I'm grateful to have them on the show as we look back at a year that was like no other. Against the backdrop of a global coronavirus pandemic, 2020 catapulted all of us into world-changing events, from the tragic loss of life and economic effects of the pandemic, to civil unrest, to ongoing wildfires, this year has certainly been a defining one. Jason and Jim, welcome to this episode.
1: Good to see you, Patty. It's been a long time. Thanks, Patty.
0: And I'm super happy to see you in person, to look at your faces. I have to acknowledge that we haven't done this in a very long time. Yes.
2: <laughs> yeah, like, like so many, I, I think we used to take getting together as frequently as possible. We used to take that for granted.
1: Yeah, and realize that there is light at the end of the tunnel, that we will get back to a normal stage in life. And uh, perhaps this will make us stronger and make us value what's really important.
0: And I have to acknowledge that we are recording this at the Gotham Podcast Studio, and we're really fortunate to have a safe or as safe as possible environment to do this where they follow protocols and precautions. So just wanted to acknowledge them. And on brand with 2020, this episode is a milestone. It's our 50th.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Huge. Huge. Uh, in fact, I had read recently. I, I, I think I shared with you the statistics involved, but only a small number of podcasts that are launched. C fifty, mm-hmm. uh, so a, a significant milestone in, indeed, particularly in light of the, the challenges in, involved with the logistics and
1: recordings mm-hmm. th- this year. Yeah, and to have that volume of of product with such a very very small team is is even more impressive.
0: Of course, we have to talk about this year. And if I'm being honest, I have thought about this episode in particular for most of this year. I've been trying to prepare in my mind after going through certain situations or experiences and saying, how do I articulate what just happened? And what did I just learn from it? And it's been hard because everything has felt monumental, like very big, very heavy. And I'm using descriptive words here, which leads me to my first question. Given that this year has been so unique and challenging in many ways, what word or words do you think capture 2020 most appropriately? And I am tempted to restrict the word unprecedented, but if you have to use it, I'll allow it.
1: Sure. I would start off by absence, suffering, disillusioned, and failure. I guess we'll break that down a little later. We'll listen to what Jason has to say, and I'll come back to mine.
0: Jason? Jason?
2: Those are strong sentiments from Jim and and certainly uh, not surprising given the challenges that 2020 has presented us. If I had to reduce the year to a few words, humbling would be one, Mm -hmm. sad in the sense of the scope and scale of human loss would be another. Family is is a word that comes to mind because I I think those of us who, who lead pretty active lives professionally found ourselves spending a tremendous amount of time with our families this year. I know I did with my daughter. The other word that I think captures 2020 is empowerment. I think that the challenges involved with the events that we navigated this year professionally required a a lot of folks to assume greater responsibility, given that the the nature in which we typically do business in organizations was uh, disrupted to the extent that it was. Mm -hmm. So I would say humbling, sadness, sense of, of the loss, empowering as well.
0: Jim, would you like to unpack your list?
1: Sure. When you talk about absence, not just the the absence of family, but absence and the failure of imagination, the absence of imagination in in government, the absence and the inability to respond and and react well, the incredible suffering, not just of the families of those who who lost loved ones, but the businesses that are suffering beyond. I mean, we're here just a a few blocks from Times Square, Mm It's December. It's snowing outside. The streets should absolutely be packed. There's no one here. I drove here. I live about three miles away. I drove here in 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. In a regular time of year, it would take two hours. You talk about disillusioned. People yearn in, in crisis for leadership and leadership at multiple levels. And this is prolonged. and It's gone on for so long that people are starting to lose hope. If you live in a city like this, if you come to a city like this, you, you come to a country like this, this is the land and this is the place of hope. Mm-hmm. And this is dragged on so long that, that and people are so, are so impacted that they're starting to lose hope. And, and that's really tragic. And c- come down to failure. Ultimately, we're here in New York City, not that far from the events of that September morning. And in response to that, you know, there was a sacred vow that never again would we, as, as, a, as a nation and as a society, ever be caught flat-footed. That we would learn uh, to think up, to think big, to think about challenges that could threaten the homeland and its people. And, and here we are now, you know, 19 years later. You know, how are we in this spot, right? And how is there not the articulation of the vision of how to get out of it? And how are we not instilling hope in people that we will get to the other side? In the darkest of moments, leaders step up, and there's really been a failure. And for me, in New York, we look at leadership from the bottom up, Mm -hmm. city, state, and the feds are are less of an issue for us, but there has been an absolute failure at, at multiple angles.
0: I respect both of your answers, and full disclosure, prior to starting this recording, I definitely acknowledged that most of this year I carried around a lot of anger but I'm trying very much to kind of rise above that. And so some of the words I wrote down are kind of the polar opposite of yours. I wrote down opportunity, truth, essential, acknowledging though, that there is a tragic loss of life this year. There's a hunger and housing crisis that so many are facing. So just trying to look at it from a different perspective and see where we can be solution oriented. Sure. That's where I
1: landed. And you talk about perspectives, right? Uh, I was here when that all went down in that September morning. I work in a very poor neighborhood in Harlem. The food lines at the yeah. pantries and the churches mm-hmm. are unbelievable, mm-hmm. like nothing I've ever seen. And I've lived in this city my entire life. You know, This is a place of such incredible wealth. And yet all these folks are just, you know it's still one of the poorest congressional districts in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's painful to watch. Mm-hmm. And uh, for them, for the poorest of, of New Yorkers, there's no end in sight.
0: This is the Leadership Under Fire podcast. So I have to ask, what do you think we learned about leadership and the human condition this past year? Jason, you, you want to start?
2: Yeah. What did we learn about leadership and human condition this year? That There's three kind of themes that come to mind. One is I, I think that this year offered us a very harsh reminder that control is an illusion. In the sense, if you were to rewind this year or late last year when folks are putting together the strategic roadmap or plan for 2020, what does it look like? I think at year end, even the most highly functioning organizations with premier leadership, very few of any of those organizations probably um, were able to achieve what they set out to attain and achieve in 2020. The second thing that I I think it reminded us this year experientially is that um, people relationships and processes are are everything and everything else is is merely details. As an organization, I think we've been unique in the fact that so much of our attention and focus since LUF's inception, the better part of a decade ago, has been about helping people to gain a better understanding of how we function under stress. You know, primarily in kind of tactical professions and this year presented an opportunity for everyone in America or the world for that matter. Mm-hmm to Getting an understanding how they function under stress, and I think that Patty used the word "unprecedented" earlier, and that was a word, or more broadly, a, a concept that I found myself using probably like late spring as we transitioned from the first phase of the pandemic to civil unrest, and I, I found myself looking at national and local events as being unprecedented and being novel. On the course of one afternoon, I'm driving into work, and like I do commonly, um, I pick up the phone and I'll call Jim Roussel just to kind of get a sense of what his read is on on events, where we're at, what the trajectory might look like, and I actually used, explicitly used the term unprecedented, and Jim, like he does or has so often, uh, over the course of our our, uh, our lengthy friendship, he says, uh, sorry, I got to stop you for a, a moment, he said, none of this is unprecedented there is a precedent for all of this. There is a precedent for civil unrest uh, in our nation cities. There is a precedent for a, a lethal and deadly pandemic. He said, you might have to go back 100 years, right? Right. But none of this was, is without precedent. He said, not nationally and certainly not globally. Like, we've been here before. Mm-hmm. Maybe those leaders in, in uh, positions of authority, senior leaders in positions of authority, time present, haven't navigated this or had to manage these events on their watch but none of this is without precedent in, in an odd way but that, that was like both encouraging and also comforting and, and also one of those scholarly moments where the Ayatollah is like there's more out there than you know you just have to go you have to go look for it he was absolutely right it was like that moment where this where the Zen master re- reminds his young protege or student that nothing is new under the the sun.
1: I, I think he was correct in, in in that regard. Sure. From a leadership perspective, I, I think the, what's happened. Uh, you also mentioned like like wildfires as being part of this. Mm-hmm. Large legacy entities, whether they be governments or large departments, are are showing their vulnerabilities in a world where the speed and pace of change is accelerating beyond things we understand. Jason, and I often refer to the Friedman book. Thank you for being late. Right. Mm-hmm. These agencies and entities, if they don't change, if they don't become more nimble and reactive, they're going to be rendered obsolete. I don't think they understand this. And sometimes in large agencies, there's this inertia. Same thing in government. In order to serve the the needs of the people, they're going to have to change and change fast. And I'm not sure that that's possible given the current structures. With respect to the human condition, in many ways, that's really been amazing. Neighbors helping neighbors, people stepping up. Uh, You think about the nurses who've endured death, paramedics and EMTs. You think about all of them really stepping up and doing the best they can. Charitable organizations, churches, people trying to fill the gaps uh, in the worst of times, people becoming better, and people showing they're far more resilient than -hmm. what they're told. I keep... You know, I keep thinking about Sebastian Junger's work, right? He mentioned uh, the Blitz, you know, the post-9-11 world, where the world came together and, and tried to, to fight through this. And we're seeing this. It doesn't get the coverage that it deserves, but you're seeing people digging in and, and trying to make the best of a very difficult situation. And, uh, you know, it, that's beyond impressive and something that needs to be, uh, needs to be spread and articulated
0: my two cents here as we talk about things from like a higher level and we talk about big organizations i've said it before and i want to say it again organizations are made up of individuals and i think that this year i spoke to julia carlson in episode 34 of this podcast and at the very end she started talking about site alignment and tying it to decision making and goals And she said that if you are close, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jason, if you're close to the target and you're making a slight mistake, the margin of error isn't that wide. But the more you back up, if you don't correct the mistake, the wider the margin of error. And those two things, just thinking about individuals are in positions of power and influence. And if you're off slightly in a big system, it's going to have a big effect. And that's just something that I have been thinking a lot about. I don't have answers. It's just something that I wanted to contribute.
1: And that's, that's a terrific viewpoint. But I've learned a lot about maneuver as an organizational concept, Jason. I'm not a Marine, but I've read enough to be an honorary one. Right? How many of these organizations empower people? Mm-hmm. Right? How many of them are willing to, to empower folks and let them go out and, and, and aggressively seek, seek answers and be willing to tolerate failure? to build and to develop people to put them in an environment where they feel safe enough and, and, and secure enough to go out and be their best and leaders to be able to say you know what i don't really understand that i should find folks that do and be willing to say i think it was um was the apple ceo bill uh, jobs steve jobs uh, i think it was jobs that said you know when in a second iteration i was smart enough to realize i should i should surround myself with really smart people and let them go do their thing. Mm -hmm. A lot of big organizations don't do that. It it takes a big leader to be able to, to say, to admit to himself and to others, I don't understand this, but I'm going to hire people who do, and then empower them to do that. That's a difficult leap, and it takes people with a lot of inner strength in order to do that.
0: The only other note that I have, and I'm going to bring it up again later, is that a lot of what I observed this year had to do with listening. And I've been really intrigued at the neuroscience of listening, but also the art of conversation, especially given the fact that we haven't had the luxury of having face-to-face interactions anymore. What's happened to conversation, more specifically, the listening part of conversation. So I'm going to bring that up again later. But for now, I'll, I'll move on and ask you both, what do each of you think the key takeaways are? from the COVID-19 pandemic?
2: Well, there are certainly many. And I think that there are some that are very much centric or specific to the first responder community. And then there are some that are just certainly relevant to virtually every industry and humanity at large. I think one of the unique things about the pandemic was that it forced all of us, regardless of our profession, to contemplate our own mortality, mm-hmm. right? In, in a way that, it, that typically those in within LUF's target audience first responders, firefighters, law enforcement, EMS providers, military, on occasion will contemplate their mortality, particularly on the back end of a catastrophic event. They claim the life of a fallen comrade. But Most humans in today's age don't wake up in the morning and ponder that they might die on that particular day or that they may become considerably ill. And I think in 2020, at some point, everyone looked around and said, I could become ill there's a probability that somebody that I love and care about deeply might be taken from me. And in that regard, not to be cliche, but like the pandemic forced all of us to become soldiers like in our own way. And I think it was somewhat of a kind of a a divine reminder that few things in life are guaranteed. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: You know, kind of goes back to this notion that control is merely an, an illusion. I think one of the things that it really reinforced Two, for organizations, and we're, we're talking about kind of practices that are perhaps optimal uh, until you're met with great adversity and disruption. It also reinforced that, Jimmy and I have both referenced this theme of empowerment, but that every organization, I don't care if you're a macro company or, or you're a small startup, you, you have to constantly be mindful of this notion of business continuity in the sense that there has to be some sort of succession of command.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And for the first time now, outside, you know, that this is common practice in the military when the infantry battalion steps off into the execution phases of an operation. The question is, well, what if the battalion commander is incapacitated? Very few organizations ever adopt that mindset because, like I said, we, we, we've just grown accustomed to having good health and we take it for granted. And, and most of us in middle-class America uh, just assume that outside of a um, freak accident, right, particularly those not in high-risk industries that we just assume we're going to live seven, eight decades here on on Earth. And I think that this pandemic serves as a harsh reminder that that's not necessarily guaranteed. One of the other products of the pandemic in terms of how we think about our society, how we think about each other and what we deem to be important is it served as a mechanism that, that allowed us to reevaluate and kind of what is essential.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I'm using air quotes around essential. It, it serves to remind us it's not pro sport. Right, though we might enjoy it and it might be as you know, significant part of our culture. It's not freaking Hollywood, right? It's the guy that gets up every morning and goes to a local grocery market and stock shelves so that when you get in the morning you, you can walk in and buy groceries for your family. It's those types of, of individuals that make
1: our beloved city and, and country work.
0: Jim, key takeaways from the COVID nineteen pandemic.
1: I would say I hope that we uh, hold on to the practices we've gained of valuing family and appreciating every day that we have. When you think about societal change, we, we heard this after 9/11, we heard it after the the, the crash of 08 that you know we're going to value things we're going to get back to the basics and and then over time we just kind of got back to a regular groove. I wish I could be a little more optimistic, but uh, I guess the older you are, the more you've seen this, um, the goodness of life starts to wear away and then we get back into this rat race of, you know, let, let, let's make money. I would imagine, you know, five years from now, uh, if we're sitting here, God willing, and trying to get here will be difficult because it's a mob scene and people, are Times Square is packed with tourists and people, And you know, there's a value to that. But at this moment, when you really value the things that matter most to you, mm-hmm. you know, your family, that would be a takeaway that that, that you'd like to see. You'd also like to finally see, again, governments and and, and agencies uh, learning. Do you actually learn from these events and get better? Not just you know have some commission that'll be appointed and they'll, they'll put out some book that nobody reads. What do we actually learn? That's, that's the real value of society, do you get better from it? Because mm-hmm. enough of going through the motions, let's get better. This should never happen to another generation. When you talk about the, the vaccine, should this pan out? And if it goes, this would be the first time ever we've generated something at this speed. That would be another example of the acceleration, mm-hmm. right? And Moore's Law is almost rendered inoperable. That would be amazing. But moving forward, I hope that we all learn from these things and, and hold on to the values that we gained because those are the things at the end that count the most. Nothing is more important than, than family
0: all important takeaways and I just want to mention that we are recording this in the beginning of December and this will be airing on December 31st so we're talking about the vaccine there could be a lot of changes between this short window I'm wondering which behaviors did each of you cultivate in the past that supported you the most through 2020 because Jason you were just talking about your time overseas like what were some of the things that you had then that helped you now?
2: A mission in early, early March, I made a decision w- with limited information that I didn't necessarily want to make. And it, it sounds a little dramatic, but at the time, like I remember like one weekend we're, we're in Brooklyn in Bed-Stuy in a brownstone, the, the core members of the team with people from across the country. And like in two short weeks, it's like we're, we're shutting down society closing all businesses. There's questions about food supply. There's questions about the lethality of the virus. Uh, You know, they're shutting down New York City. Everyone's going to work from home. I remember just kind of being concerned. I don't know if concern is the right word. I I just didn't know what what, what was it going to look like if, if my wife and daughter are home and everyone else is at home. And there is this virus proves to be extraordinarily lethal. And there is a shortage of food. What does that look like in a city with eight Eight million people mm-hmm. so w- collectively my wife and i we made a decision that she was going to go to her parents for a few weeks and we're going to kind of wait to see how this thing unfolded it was uh kind of tough putting my daughter on a on a plane basically a one-way flight but i feel like i was making the right decision so the fdny transitioned and we're doing these um what we call an abcd chart typically we work we, d- we don't work a, a strict platoon chart like most fire departments and now suddenly we find ourselves working with the same guys we go to work for 24 hours or off for 72 hours and the assumption was that as enough guys got sick, you would end up working more than, than just that 24-hour period. So I kind of assumed that I was going to be at work more than I winded up being at, at work. But now I, I go to work for 24, and I, I'm home for 72 hours, like, and like I have nothing to do except sit there and think about the pandemic. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I need a mission, and I need to, I need to do something. I'm like, maybe I can help deliver groceries i'm like what, what the heck does that even look like maybe the people that are shuttered in their homes are concerned to, to go out so i'm the probably the least technologically savvy people you know my wife teases me about it frequently but i i found this platform called task and i created a <laughs> you didn't know this no so i almost forgot this like as i'm thinking about what i was going to reflect on for the course of the year um this wasn't even on my radar and looking back, it's. It, you know, someday when my daughter is uh, comes of age and we could talk about the pandemic of two thousand and twenty. I created a test gravity account. So um I spent a solid probably month or two on my my off days just delivering groceries, uh medicine, cats. Uh, what yeah there was a young lady that had relocated from Midtown to Jersey City and you know needed needed me to transport her precious cargo in the form of a cat uh, and I was I was doing like 15 16 missions a day and this is like a you know it's minimum wage but a couple things that came out of it one is it gave me something to do two is I I was genuinely helping people at a time when people were even terrified even to open their door I I, right. I, I kid you not I actually felt really bad for some of these people and, and some of them had autoimmune conditions that kind of warranted them to taking extreme measures and, and precautions. And then it became – then like the, the the competitiveness sets in. It's like how many missions a day can I accomplish? At the time, there was no traffic. I mean I was delivering things, all five bros, the outlying s- suburbs. I became like really maniacal about the ratings and reviews I was getting. <laughs> but I, I achieved like gold status or whatever the hell it is. We task grab in a matter of weeks, and then traffic started resuming. I'm like, I'm out on this, but it, it uh, there was a mission there, and, and as silly as that is, it gave me something something to do. It wasn't nearly as exciting as leading Marines, and certainly not not as exciting as you know working in the flyhouse and leading that environment. But you know, it, it gave me something to do to, to pass my time in, in a you know substantive way, and, and uh, just be able to kind of help help people. And, and it's funny, I I developed these. Relationships with with people that I didn't really even know, mm-hmm. you know. And commonly, I text them to check in. They would, they would text me. They were, they were equally concerned about my safety because I was out there in the <laughs> in the environment. But yeah, somebody someday somebody will say, "What did you do during the during the pandemic of 2020?" And I'll say, oh, "I was I was a task rabbit." But it goes back to the mission, right? People need to feel, and this is my concern about the pandemic. The longer we drag it out. Not drag it out in terms of being prudent about it, but dragging it out in terms of shuttering businesses, small businesses, mm-hmm. and minimizing people. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to Sebastian. People need to feel relevant.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And if they don't feel relevant and they're isolated, the harm that that results from that is uh, irreparable in, in some instances.
0: Jim?
1: A couple things. Um I had a bit of a health issue uh, at the beginning of the year, and then uh, I was recovering, and then it hit March 16th, you know, this thing broke out, so I couldn't sit on the sidelines. I went back to work, but from a day-to-day basis, you know, I think growing up in this city, and especially, you know, I was in in grade school in the 70s, you know, I I worked in high school right up the street here on on Broadway, not much faces you. You just expect that. Okay, well, here's another issue that's that's really difficult. You know, we're going to get through this. If your life is just constantly overcoming things, you know, bring it on. You know, just bring it on. Some are harder than others. You know, this was difficult. Again, you know, not being able to see uh, see my mother. You know, the family not getting together. That was and still is hard. But other than that, keeping busy and and, and keeping at it. If, if you've been through things before. And you've done them over and over again. You built up a level of tolerance and also optimism. I mean, if you if you grew up in the city when it was really bad, well, you just always said to yourself, "Well, tomorrow will be a better day because today can't be any worse." And just you know, you carry that on. And not for nothing, that that comes from my mother, you know, who you know is without question the most resilient individual I've ever met. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, just keep plugging. Don't don't stop and we're getting there, slowly but surely. Jason? I would
2: be amiss if I didn't comment on the courage that the FDNY demonstrated this year at, at the tactical level. Who would have thought that something as simple as an N95 mask would, would become one of the most important tools? You know, it's easy to look back now and say, well, we, we've come to gain a pretty underst- good understanding of of the coronavirus and how to manage it, what precautions are most appropriate, all of like the, the technical details. But but back in March, when it suddenly became evident that this virus was, was very deadly, it was really impressive to see what these, particularly these young men and women in the New York City Fire Department, did on a, on a daily basis. The run volume for EMS responses skyrocketed. There were companies that were doing, EDGE companies that were doing 12, 13, 14 runs for cardiac arrest in right. a single 24. You know, as a, as a leader, you, know, you, you watch these, these young men and women get on a, a fire engine respond to a CFR run, provide critical care while wearing a a protective posture that they don't typically wear, fully isolated and encapsulated, wearing a a mask, eye protection, offering emotional support to the family, oftentimes like via a a cell phone, right? Because the the individual who who had succumbed to to COVID, their daughter or son had made the decision to, to isolate. I'm watching these young men and women not only provide critical care, but provide emotional support. Mm-hmm. Then they go back to the flyhouse, house, they decon, they restock. And within minutes, they're back on the rig responding to a phone alarm for flyer. Mm-hmm. Like if there's one word that I think captures that, it's 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 agility. It was so impressive to watch and be a part of that. And in some ways it was like, like that season and or that chapter, and, it, and to some extent, it still continues. Though fortunately, we're not we're not going on this the same number of runs as we were earlier in the year. But in some ways, it was almost like reminiscent of of the earliest phases of the Iraq War, where you know I remember being downranger in body armor, and you're prepared for a very kinetic fight, weapon systems and artillery and body armor and and vehicle armor. Meanwhile, in the back of your mind, there's significant talk about the fact that Saddam Hussein might use Weapons of mass destruction in the form of biological or chemical agents. You've been vaccinated against anthrax and smallpox. And what's very, very difficult about that threat is the threat that you can't see is psychologically taxing.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Right. Like you go to a fire more times than not. right? You you kind of like physically aware or, or visually aware of what could go wrong. And this this pandemic was was unique. Like I said, incredibly proud. Of the courage that these young men and women dis- display, particularly in EMS, and I, I would say that they're the uh, the true heroes of this of this chapter mm-hmm. in, in American history. And I think one of the takeaways is, you know, Jimmy will often reference uh, the great work of David Epstein and Range, and and I think we kind of knew this going into the year that it was incredibly important for for all of us to be, you know, sp- specialist across a number of facets. But to largely be generalist, um, it's kind of one of the underlying principles of maneuver. But I think that this year just demonstrated yet again, those are generalist will be far more successful in a chaotic, uncertain, disruptive world than those that are merely specialist.
1: And to to add on to that, you know, watching all these fine young men and women absorb all of this, another example of how our structure on the fireside of the house allowed them to absorb it and to bounce back a little better than EMS, it's you and your partner, right? When you come back to that table, that structure, and when you've spent the time to build that structure prior, it allows you to bounce back, absorb, and get back into the fight. And also something we talk about all the time is the quality of these fine young men and women. What have they not seen in the, in the post 9-11 period? They've done terrorist events. They've done biblical flooding. They've done a pandemic nobody's seen in 100 years. What's next? Locust? I mean, there is nothing these kids can't do. Mm -hmm. And they do it with style. We can't emphasize that point enough. They're absolutely remarkable.
0: You know what you both reminded me of, and I miss terribly, is those 7 p.m. clappy hours that we had here in the city. Remember, everybody at 7 p.m., no matter where you were, you could literally just be walking down the street and all of a sudden a roar erupted with applause for EMS providers, healthcare workers, and it was really powerful and very beautiful. And it brought everybody together, like millions of people were together for a moment.
1: Welcome to New York.
2: <laughs> they, it, really was, uh, it really was a special thing. And I, I feel like with the trajectory of, of events this year, it, it's difficult to even re- remember that that,
3: right. that
2: transpired with great regularity.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Right, because by June, I remember standing in the in the streets of Lower Manhattan, looking around at what was transpiring, and saying, "It's seven o'clock. Like,
0: right. if we could Every, just go back, everybody time out. If
2: we could just go back and stand outside of a hospital, we were unified for yes, the better part of two months there, and it it was it, it was special.
0: But it does bring me to my next question, which is about civil unrest, which obviously transpired in many cities and municipalities beginning in late May when George Floyd died while in police custody. So I have to ask, what are the key takeaways from each of your perspectives as it relates to human performance under stress?
1: This is an enormous topic. Yeah, um, we could say. And incredibly complex and, and far more complex than, than the television station of your ideology would have you believe. Break it down into, into what police officers do. Uh, Refer back to the best book I've ever read, uh, Behave, by Dr. Sapolsky, and he talks about what happens in those moments before, what's going on with you physiologically. It's incredible what law enforcement has had to endure. They've been asked to to solve every problem that uh, elected officials have failed to address for so long. We really push people to their breaking point, and I think without the the training and the preparation beforehand, you're setting yourself up for failure. We put people on the street with very little understanding of what's happening to them, very little support in organizations that don't empower and certainly uh, don't support them when things go sideways. Absent that, I don't see a positive future in that realm. Uh, From a performance standpoint, can you you prepare people better? Yeah, you can. It takes money, it takes commitment, but the possibility exists. And also, this is a, a... a problem that goes much larger than just policy and something that we failed to address for, for a long time.
0: What's your take?
2: At this point, when I think about civil unrest, I tend to focus on the aspects that are most relevant to the fire service, right? Because that's nearest and dearest to, to my heart as it is Jimmy's. I, I think the great tragedy of of 2020 as it relates to this topic will be the, the vilification of, of law enforcement mm-hmm. and, and the extent to which it transpired and manifested and we Americans are generally uh tolerant to mistakes and we we tend to have very high standards of what we expect of of ourselves and and each other as a, as a society um, the thing that concerns me about our relationship with law enforcement i fear that we hold law enforcement to a standard that we hold no other profession to none of us are doctors right we have great appreciation for For doctors, I think we're all aware of the fact that some instances, doctors make mistakes and cost people their lives in in settings where they're trying to do the right thing for the right reasons. And they're operating under pressure or or stress. And to the extent that there's probably some people that practice medicine that are malicious and are nefarious, but we don't view the whole profession through that lens. Let's look at sport, right? I I think we all hold sport in high regard and recognize it's a significant part of our, our culture um, enjoy the, the competitiveness of it, enjoy the rivalry, the, the spirited banter. I think we recognize that athletes sometimes make poor decisions mm-hmm. on the field of play under pressure. Arguably, sometimes they make very poor decisions off the field of play, arguably because they're navigating the, the pressure associated with life. We don't vilify the entire entire sport. Teachers, we're all product of of a, a really tremendous education system where we – have benefited from teachers that had a, took a tremendous interest in, in each of us, and it invested in our education. It's not lost on us that there are teachers that sometimes do make really poor decisions, or teachers that are also equally malicious. We don't vilify the entire system. I mean, I, you know, and and I think that the extent to which law enforcement was vilified will prove, and is already proving to be one of the great tragedies of this year. And I think that what's missing from the conversation. It's the same thing that's missing from the, the conversation around performance in the fire service or has been and that's what happens in the mind and body under stress how is everyone in that environment impacted what are some of the universalities and then okay in light of that how do we better prepare how do we better prepare organizations how do we better prepare individuals to increase the likelihood that they're they're gonna perform well under pressure. That just requires some maturity. It requires some objectivity, right? And and what happened in Minneapolis was, I'm, I'm like even hesitant to even use a word because I don't know if it captures it. Because I don't know if like a, if I can if I have a word to describe what it felt like to watch that. And and I think everyone everyone in our society shares that sentiment. Shares that earlier talking about anger. That's that sadness that it's tough to frame that problem set as an opportunity, mm-hmm. but there is an opportunity there to learn from it,
3: mm-hmm.
2: to get better collectively. And, and I think that, that that was an option. And instead, we, we left our own devices. We, we, um, we turned against each, each other and we vilified an entire group of men and women that overwhelmingly get up every single day and go to work to ensure that all of us are able to, you know, sleep in our beds at night peacefully. What has been missing from the conversation is a, a better understanding of, of the human condition.
1: And a better understanding of performance under stress. Think about our own operational procedures, you know, how much they reflect the, the real impacts of operational stress. You know, look at your police departments. How many of their operational procedures are written with a, a scientific understanding of what's happening to you? You can solve these problems, right? And we're largely working at that now. It's, it's solvable. And also, how much can you throw at them? You, you can't have your municipal agencies, police, and fire being the all-encompassing agencies of last resort. You can't ask them to do all these things while at the same time, you know, pay them what they're worth, you don't know, raise the standards... Many of these are are solvable. It takes leadership to to realize that we have a problem and to take the time and make the effort to reach out to people who understand how to solve them and then go through the process because it's a process, right? You can't just change a culture overnight, but you can solve these things. And it's it's a tragedy when, when when you see Especially individual law enforcement officers who are vilified, they're in situations where, again, if you if you understand this scientifically, they're in a no-win situation when they're going right of center, right when they're in system one, when they start becoming a more primitive version of the of themselves physiologically. Well, you know, the person shooting that in the camera doesn't understand that, and part of the problem also is again we come back to this issue of the speed of change, the availability of cameras something that what jason and i refer to as the citizen effect because in new york city there is a a, an app called citizen and you can immediately upload your street videos and you it's you watch it straight away uh that has an impact on law enforcement on fire on ems so the the environment is becoming more pressure-filled they're in no-win situations i mean this is we're putting you know intolerable level of stress on and you have to be concerned in the law enforcement community Again, without those networks to help them and that community to absorb the stress, what will happen to them in the future? You know, you don't want to see tragic endings for these men and women. But when when they're left to their their own devices and they're left alone, the the outcomes may not be good.
2: Yeah, and just to echo some some of Jimmy's sentiments from my perspective, if the great tragedy, if one of the great tragedies of 2020 was the vilification of law enforcement to the extent that it, it transpired. and while I can understand why that sentiment existed in light of what had happened, the most illogical step is then to say we're going to cut resources and training. <laughs> That's where you, you really have to step back and say, okay, we're, we're not being the, the least bit objective about this. This is entirely emo- an emotional response. So let's let's take a deep breath, All right Let's engage system two here collectively. And let's analyze the problem set. If the objective is to have law enforcement perform at a higher level, then the logical step is to provide them with better training and resources. Earlier, we we touched on the reevaluation of what's essential and what wasn't in 2020. And a dynamic that just continues to blow my mind is that there are municipalities in the United States that more or less voted to minimize or marginalize law enforcement, some of these municipalities, like their collegiate and pro sports teams, those athletes have access, frequent access to resources, to subject matter experts that the local cops don't. Meanwhile, the, the local cops are operating in an environment that that is far, far more uncertain and dynamic and challenging. And not to diminish sport, but like, what the hell are what the hell are we doing here? You know, you, you, you're a Division I football player. You, you have access to considerable resources that are going to help to optimize your performance in every facet. Where is that resource f- for law enforcement? And we, we have the ability, mm-hmm. right, to optimize performance in, in, in law enforcement. It's just frustrating to see that the, the logic that's applied to the problem set is, is anything but logical.
1: And public policy should not be made... Uh... With emotion, right? There has to be considerable thought, a cooling down period, rational heads. We live in a world where where decisions are made in seconds. Mm -hmm. That's not sound public policy. And also going back to Jason's point, what do we really value, right? LeBron spends seven figures on mind and body. How much do we spend helping our police officers' mind and body? That's a societal question.
2: Yeah. So we discussed some of the takeaways as it relates to law enforcement, the problem set, and uh, I I think some of the opportunities. Similar to the pandemic, I think I would be amiss if I didn't speak to the courage that so many first responders at the tactical level demonstrated in in early June here in New York and some places across America for the duration of the the summer. I, I don't think any of us were surprised to see civil unrest transpire here in the, the city of new york as it began to transpire in, in so many cities across america what i think was particularly unique was that if you had asked me to identify what neighborhoods in, in new york city would experience unrest i don't think i would have picked the neighborhoods with accuracy and what's interesting is that you have this dynamic where you have these young men and women as your companies truck companies responding to fires rubbish fires. Car fires, more accurately, police car fires, uh, one night, the next night, right? And, and it just continues. So you have these young members that, that are operating in arguably a urban insurgency, right? In in lower Manhattan, there was a particularly active night in the Bronx, too. So, you know, you can make the argument, well, it's not without precedent. Like there, there was a time period in American history where this happened. Yes, that's true. But guess what? In in the city of New York, there hadn't been activity, certainly to not that level, since the late 70s, which means that no one in the New York City Fire Department this summer, not the most seasoned and senior leaders, chief officers, company officers with with four decades of service, as significant as it is, none of those gentlemen had real world slides that were responsive to, to navigating civil unrest and fire and emergency operations during civil unrest. And in a matter of nights, some of these younger members acquired some really significant real-world slides that exceeded anything that the most senior and seasoned leaders in the department had. Same with the pandemic. And I think that their uh, the courage that they demonstrated was something special, their willingness to respond to these these fires and emergencies and, and help those in, in need. And two, the discipline and, and the restraint that they, that they demonstrated while operating in these fires and emergencies at a time when... The environment is just supercharged emotionally was significant too, and that speaks to not only their their character, but it also speaks to small unit leadership.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and many of those young firefighters were also the ones who've uh, who've absorbed terrorist events, you know, in, in neighborhoods that you would not normally consider, and yet they've they've responded and, and adapted, and learned and absorbed, uh, and, and it's a testament to them. How much more can you throw at them? In, in the absence of, you know, explicit guidance from above, they found a way to get the job done. And it's a, it's a testament to them in the highest traditions of this department. Yeah. So at the tactical
2: level, when I reflect on what the performance of small units during the course of the, uh, the summer during the civil unrest, like I said, it was uh, certainly commendable. When I reflect on 2020, specifically the civil unrest in a firefighting context, I think, it was a, I think it was a strategic failure in the sense that I think that... And New York wasn't unique. And there were departments and cities that experienced unrest that surpassed the unrest we experienced here. But there was certainly uh, several nights of unrest here with severe economic consequences, particularly for, for small businesses and businesses. And much of the consequences were, were minimized because of the courageous service of the NYPD and, and the FDNY. That said... This is something that we navigated as a nation late May into June, some places well until August. So then you would say, okay, we're, we're professionals, it's professional fire service. We execute, we reflect, we conduct after-action reviews, we learn, and we ad- adapt our behavior going, going forward. I, I don't know if the word disappointed captures my sentiments about an unwillingness on the part of the American Fire Service collectively, globally, to learn from the experience that we had this summer we, uh, once the civil unrest had started, and of course the LUF network extends well beyond New York City, uh, members of the network and team working in California and in the Midwest and, uh, you know, all across the country. And like I said, we weren't unique. We weren't the only members of fire departments responding to fires, and emergency operations or civil unrest. One of the concerns that we had early on was that for reasons potentially political, fire departments might not take the opportunity to capture the lessons learned. And to reflect to the same extent that they would on the back end of wildland fires or hurricane operations, right? Perhaps that's because the civil unrest was was inherently political in in nature. That said, I I think that as professionals we have a tremendous responsibility to be apolitical and, and to be entirely non- nonpartisan when it comes to what we view as being our our responsibilities at work. And I think to not collectively learn, identified some of the gaps and deficiencies in our response models. Look, to a large extent, you could argue that they worked, but I think a true professional would say, well, they worked, but there's certainly an opportunity to improve for, for the next the next cycle of unrest, which hopefully will, will be never. Hopefully, it will be decades from now. I think this is where Jim Rissell is thinking that none of this is without precedent. Historically, There's been two principal drivers for civil unrest in in America. One is race, two is labor. This notion that one political candidate or another political candidate might be the antidote to unrest, that seems a little far-reaching. I think we do have responsibility to prepare for unrest in the future. I think it was kind of an opportunity lost. I should mention, so LUF did proceed to put together a white paper that kind of highlighted some of the deficiencies and some of the gaps and the response model that we used across the country. There's a tremendous amount of, of input from ten major municipalities in the United States. We then sent that white paper out to twenty-five of the largest fire departments in the country and were departments that had experienced heightened unrest and encouraged them to provide us feedback. We were you know, hopeful that there would be other papers to come out and other products that would offer divergent viewpoints. You know, and certainly we're not we're not the authority and in the broad scope of things, like the team's collective experience is, is somewhat nominal, right? It, 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 when you look at the, the broad scheme of things, and little to no no feedback. Um, I had to laugh the other day. If you go online and you do a precursory search for literature about fire and emergency operations during civil unrest, you're not going to find a whole heck of a lot. If you do a pre- precursory search for fire and emergency operations during a sarin gas attack, you will find more literature that I know of. There's been one sarin gas attack that happened in Tokyo in 1995 in transit in one of the world's largest cities. And as significant as it is, you know, it just kind of raises a question like, you know, in in terms of the collective global American fire service, I I just think we can do a better job of preparing for complex and emergent events. I don't think as unique as 2020 has been, I think it offers us, us an opportunity to prepare for similarly complex Events in the future,
0: and luckily now that white paper actually is available to people on the Leadership Under Fire website.
2: It is, and I, I should mention if you have firsthand or even secondhand experience, we'd love to hear your, your thoughts. It's a living document. How we think about preparing and responding to fire and emergency operations during civil unrest today, it will continue to evolve.
0: Thank you both for your insight. And in the interest of time, I'm gonna move on to the next question. What is one thing you changed your mind about this year based on experience or personal study or one behavioral change that you made based with professional and personal implications? I'm gonna defer
2: to the senior man.
1: Uh, For me, it's about sleep and recovery. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jason and I both wear a biometric device. Mm -hmm. Having that data available daily caused me to change my behavior you know for the first 50 years or so i lived a life saying well i'll sleep when i die well if you don't correct that issue you're going to expedite that uh, that entry so uh, i've certainly changed that uh and it has really helped me a lot Uh, especially you get you get older and you do what we do that's a necessary change and it was driven by the data that was available
2: mine is similar but but also a little a little different the biggest change that I, I made this year, behaviorally, was my relationship with, with alcohol. You know, Jimmy and I have been wearing the Whoop now for, for several years. Going into the year, I, w- I was pretty well acquainted with the effects of it, um, but I, I just wasn't quite willing to make a, a change. And I, I would consider myself a casual, up until this year, I would consider myself a casual drinker. You know many nights if I wasn't at work? Might have one or two beverages, generally no more than than three. Jack and Coke, my might, might drink of choice. And then what happened this year was I started the year by reading uh, Why We Sleep by Matt Walker, so I'm I'm like you know I'm thinking even a little bit more about the effects of alcohol on my sleep, and of course I'm looking at my data every day when I when I wake up, and like Danny Fowler says, Danny's off doing some some pretty impressive things right now, but like Danny Fowler says, it's like the whoop is like looking yourself in the mirror a little bit more deeply, the score doesn't lie, right? So couple things happened where kind of like in that intersection of what what do the philosophers say that intersection between fate and responsibility my wife is pregnant uh she's been pregnant since late spring so of course she's you know or normally enjoys a beverage every once in a while obviously when she's not pregnant so she's since abstained from from alcohol for much of the year and then one one day jake comes over jake dutton comes over he lives in a neighborhood we're gonna have a uh, like a barbecue we're going to cook out. And he's going to work that night. So he brings a, he brings a case of beer, but he brings – because he's going to work that night, he brings non-alcoholic or what we Marines refer to as near beer. So when he leaves, he leaves a, a bunch of near beers in, in my refrigerator. So, of course, you can't have beer in the refrigerator and not drink it. So I start to drink it. And I actually find that I actually – in an odd way, I actually liked it. It's brewed upstate. So now I'm drinking this, this near beer. Of course, my, my wife's not drinking. And then what happens is I – I said, you know what? I'm going to go a week without without drinking alcohol, and the differences were palpable. Not only in my data, but how I how I felt. you know, like to say that I don't I don't enjoy myself every once in a while, but uh, I've largely removed alcohol. It tends to be increasingly infrequent as opposed to casually infrequent.
0: Thank you, Jason. Listeners, in case you're wondering who Danny Fowler and Jacob Dutton are, luckily you can find out by listening to previous episodes of this podcast. Jason and Jim, I'm so excited for this question. I can't wait to find out the answers. What was the best book you read in 2020 and why?
1: A Really tough one. Uh, I brought the two finalists here. Learning from the Germans was a great book, but I think the, uh, the ultimate favorite has to be at least for this program, would be a war doctor by David Knott. David Knott is a Welsh physician, lives in London, who continually volunteers his services to organizations that serve war-torn areas, disasters, and so forth. And for someone to take that kind of talent to the most hellish places on Earth was remarkable. And as I was reading this, I, I couldn't stop thinking about Lindsay Adario. Lindsay has been in some of the most hellish places on Earth escaped a near-death incident, and continued to, to do the work, to tell the story. And I just started drawing, like, continual parallels. What drives firefighters and, and police officers to do the work, to live a life of service? Uh, and then I kind of drew another parallel. What prompts people to, to serve in the military? And I recall an incident when we were down in—all three of us were down in Annapolis, and Jason was giving a lecture to some young future Marines— And I sat in the back of the lecture, and again, first, I was just struck at how young they were. All I could think about is, how is it at that age you decide to dedicate your life to something bigger and greater than yourself? You know, when I was that age, it never dawned on me. And, And the larger part of this from a societal perspective is we have to understand what drives these people. Where does it start? Right, Because we need to nurture that, create an environment that induces this. And then we need to reward these people. Because to build a better society, you need these types of people. You need more of them. Because at present, we value and we reward all the wrong people. And for me, that's what War Doctor was about.
0: And Lindsay Adario was featured on episode number one of the podcast. So just wanted to make mention of that. Jason.
2: So one of the good things to come out of twenty twenty was that I had more time to read than I had anticipated going into the uh, into the year. Uh, one or two notable favorites high high on the list: "Why We Sleep," which I I referenced by Matt Walker. I had the ability to, the time to go back and revisit some of Gary Klein's books. I felt like the the civil unrest was uh, kind of a primer to to go back and revisit the fires by Joe Flood.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think runner-up would be Moonwalking with Einstein, pretty interesting book <laughs> by Josh Farah. And I I will tell you, I, I picked it up initially in January, February, and I hoped that it was going to give me a competitive advantage in preparing for the captain's test, given the extensive rope memorization that goes into preparing for New York City Civil Service exams. And um, unfortunately, uh, it came up short in in that regard. But it was a fascinating read nonetheless. Excuse me, nonetheless. And then I think... the the favorite for the year um, is going to be The Body Keeps the Score by Beso Von Der Kolk. Coleman Ruiz had said on numerous occasions it was one of his favorite books um, and incredibly enlightening. So when somebody like Coleman plugs a book in that fashion, you, you know it's going to be exceptional. And I had been sl- a little hesitant to, to pick it up because I thought it was going to be singularly about trauma, mm-hmm. trauma as a, as, a pro- as a product of conflict and combat. And I was like, a little hesitant to kind of revisit, or to pick up a book, knowing that that's really where the the starting point was. But it's about that, and and, and so much more. Uh, I'm not even going to try to summarize it because I would, I would come up short. But I I highly highly uh, recommend. I see Jimmy nodding here too. I know I know it's one of his uh, his favorites.
0: Yeah, those are very lofty books you chose. I have two that I'm willing to throw in. One is You're Not Listening, What You're Missing and Why It Matters by Kate Murphy and No Relation. But in the book, she spoke to spies, spiritual leaders, bartenders, hostage negotiators, hairdressers, air traffic controllers, radio producers, focus group moderators. And she dives into the science of listening and also research being conducted around the world on the subject. And I thought it was interesting that it was published in January of 2020, so I looked up if she had done any follow-up content related to that, and she did. It's available on the New York Times website, so I thought that was interesting. And then the other one, which I know half the listeners are not going to subscribe to, but I'm going to share it anyway, because I've had a very different 2020 experience. I've been you know, quarantining mainly by myself, so I've been doing a lot of looking inward and the book *The Untethered Soul* by Michael Singer was very enlightening, and um, you'll definitely find it in the spiritual genre. <laughs>
1: yeah, it sounds like a deep, a deep read. Well, <laughs> we're out on that.
0: I know. I'm li- well. At least you know I'm listening outward and inward, and um... no, that is that is cool.
2: The, the contrasting themes there—listening outward and inward—that's that's, that's uh...
1: yeah. And the listening.
0: Thanks, guys. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I, I had heard. I think that the Murphy book has received a lot of attention Mm
0: -hmm.
2: in in the press, uh, you know, New York Times, Sunday newspaper, et cetera. The other book I was not familiar with.
0: No, you probably wouldn't be. You're probably not going to pick it up either, but it's okay. I'm throwing it out there just in case. (laughs) As we begin to wrap up, I wanted to talk about Leadership Under Fire. Which 2020 LUF project or program are you both most proud of and why?
1: Uh, to me, it's uh, when we go out and uh, and present face-to-face for a variety of reasons. Selfishly, it's an opportunity to learn, often from people uh, and places I've never been to. And I'm consistently astounded at what these young men and women do with literally no resources and just a tremendous amount of heart and open minds. And it's also, it's, it's a fantastic opportunity to share some of the things that, that we've done. I thought that, my generation led a pretty normal life, but apparently not. If you can, you can share it with, with other people and you can help them to prepare for the unimaginable, that is incredibly valuable. And, and to see small fire departments, whether it's in Colorado or Ohio or, or Prince George, the smaller departments who are just so open-minded, so willing to learn, willing to think differently, it's really it was mind-blowing. We were in Colorado recently, and we uh, were having a Q&A with, with some of the students, and I said to Jason, I'll take some of these kids home with me. I mean, they were that good and just so willing to learn. Uh, it's very rewarding. But also from a team perspective, when we finish that, and we all sit together, oftentimes uh, having dinner, it's not just reflecting on what we've done, but it gives us a chance to build as a team. Now, we all have lives where we're moving 1,000 miles an hour. But when we can sit down, break bread, and continue to build those relationships, that's hypercritical because that allows us to, to, to push ourselves and to raise our, our, our cumulative level of, of knowledge and understanding to the next level, to the next place. And that, to me, is uh, <laughs> it's the best.
2: Yeah, getting to observe Jimmy on the road uh, outside the city of New York, is, it's a treat we had him out recently in colorado and getting to see the interact getting to see him interact with with the guys there and just the shared growth
3: mm-hmm.
2: for those guys on the receiving end and, and jimmy in, in terms of just thinking about what's within the realm of possible even here in the, uh the city of new york in terms of optimizing your performance um which program am i most proud of for 2020 and something that wasn't even on the radar earlier in the year the year got off to a great start we We launched the Optimizing Human Performance, more or less, MPI program in the city of Milwaukee. That was, with their fire department, uh, spectacular, really great group. Had a Human Performance Thought Leaders retreat here in in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. That was a a really special couple of of days. And then the pandemic forced us to change the way we're going to do business going forward. We had never delivered it on a, a program online. And left on my own devices, I would have probably been hesitant or resistant to it. And I think one of the best things that come out of the podcast, which I initially had been resistant and hesitant to to do, was um, just becoming more comfortable, increasingly comfortable with having a and seeing the value in having a digital capability set. Mm -hmm. And I feel like because we were able to to gain some traction with the podcast, despite having a very small modest, modest, modest resources, being able to be successful on that front. I said, you know what, maybe we, maybe we, maybe we can succeed in, in the digital space. Knowing that we weren't be able to have the week on the farm,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, like we've grown accustomed to, to enjoying each fall. So you know what, let's, let's do a, an online leadership development course in the fall. The group will meet weekly for a couple of hours and, uh, you know, the curriculum will be similar. We just won't be together. I had very modest expectations as to what that was going to look like. Just wrapped up last night, anybody that was involved in that will tell you that that group was every bit as spectacular as the, as the group on the farm. And in some ways there's some advantages that people have time for things to percolate, you know, between meetings and, you know, while there's some disadvantages that you're not physically together, there are some advantages as it relates to reflection and, and learning as well. You know, seeing the podcast can continue to grow, you know, the milestone of the 50 episodes. Jimmy's release of the mm-hmm. Senior Man Performance Journal was, was really cool. The thing I'm most proud of this year in terms of the team and program that we delivered or contributed to dates back to March. And I, I got a phone call from um, somebody in the medical community here in New York in a major New York hospital that I have a re- really good rapport with professionally and have for a number of years. And she said, hey, um, there's some real concern in our hospitals right now that our providers might not be prepared for what they're gonna navigate mentally, emotionally, and morally. And it goes back to that conversation around mortality. Like they're now realizing that like they're gonna be risking their lives just coming to work. Not just the critical care providers, but like the support staff, the logistics staff in these hospitals. And and I think LUF might might be an asset. So we with a very, very compressed timeline, we put together an optimizing human performance program. 4th fourth-year medical students whose, their education was being accelerated, and they, and they were going to find themselves on the, on the front lines in very short order. And, of course, none of us are MDs, right? But we had we had a resource that was valuable to them, particularly at that time. And I think when I look back on what, what I'm most proud of is kind of the founder of LUF, LUF for 2020, it would be delivering a program to those medical students who are on the front lines right now at major New York hospitals. And that wasn't even on our radar, right? But somewhere at the intersection of fate and responsibility, there was an opportunity for us to, um, to serve others and, uh, incredibly proud of of that. I think that that's something we'll probably be able to build on in the future. We'll continue to deliver a program like that to, to people in that industry. And that's, that's special.
0: I'm going to use that to segue into the next question, but I do want to put on the record for this. I want to acknowledge my counterpart here, Jim for hosting the senior man feature episodes i think you're gonna put me out of a job but also looking at the metrics of those episodes it's clear that they're needed so many people love those episodes
1: thank you patty but uh, i learned it all from you (laughs) yeah
2: i love it jimmy was the probably one of the most unlikely candidates to ever author (laughs) graduate level research at columbia university and certainly the most unlikely
1: candidate to ever uh, host podcast.
0: Maybe that's why it works.
1: <laughs> but that goes back also to something we, we talk about repeatedly, right? The power of, of possibility,
3: mm-hmm.
1: right? I was 52 years of age when I met the mad scientist, right? That's not generally a, a point in your life or your career where you decide, hey, I'm going I'm to go in another direction and just go after it. The power of possibility and the power of hope and to believe in something. And there's something to be said about that.
0: Lastly, which Leadership Under Fire program or project are you most excited about in the year ahead?
1: Hopefully, uh, with the vaccine coming, uh, we'll be able to get out on the road a little more than we did this year. And also, uh, hopefully, the farm. That is a really unique venue. Trying to get Jason to make it a permanent uh, base of operations, so we'll see how that goes. But uh, the, the farm is really a very, very special week.
2: Yeah, the the week on the farm is, is terrific, and I really hope we get to return there this coming uh, this coming year. What am I most looking forward to? Uh, we have a program; it's in the planning phase that we're going to deliver a hybrid leadership development slash optimizing human performance program to some leaders in corrections. You know, another industry that doesn't really get much in the way of notoriety or attention until they do. Um, talk about an incredibly demanding and, sure. and, and difficult job. You know, if you've ever even as a firefighter, if you have ever even just responded to a jail or prison just for an EMS run or a fire run, like it, it is uh, quickly becomes apparent just how daunting and challenging that environment is. Um, so we have, we're delivering a program for a statewide corrections system. We're really excited about that. But just the relationships I, I, that we've been able to to foster and cultivate and build with, with so many people across the, the country. You know, it leaves me both honored and, and humbled to be involved with, with LUF.
0: Anything else you guys want to add before we wrap up?
1: How about what you're most excited for? Hold on. Throw it in there. Favorite podcast. Oh.
0: Which was your favorite podcast episode from this year?
1: Very difficult. Um, but ultimately, my old friend, Captain Al Hagen. Mm. Um, he is a walking encyclopedia of all things firefighting, city politics and finance union, a lifelong learner, and someone whose knowledge and understanding will be absolutely invaluable as we attempt to uh, navigate years of future uncertainty here. You talk about not having mental models. Well, Captain Al Hagen is a living mental model of how to handle these things, and also an old friend of mine who I've had the pleasure to work with for many years. He is simply the best.
0: It was great to listen to. Jason?
2: Your conversation with Sandy Alderson. Really? Yeah, hands down. I mean, there, there were so many great episodes this year. J- Jimmy's conversation with, with Bobby Athanas, his two-part series with with Captain Ow. you know, Julia Carlson, somebody that I, I hold in the highest regard and being able to listen to her speak in detail about him performance, but your conversation with, with Sandy. And I don't even know if I even had shared with you what was, like, personally, like, the impetus for that conversation. I mean, other than the fact that I have a, I've had a really good rapport with, with Sandy for a number of years, and I, I view him as a mentor. I was out one day with my daughter in the neighborhood park, and I I took a break from picking dandelions with her. And I sat down, and I was scrolling through different podcasts, and I, I came across one. I think it was, like, I'm not sure if it was ESPN, but it was a major sports network, and it was a conversation with Sandy. And as I'm listening to it, one of the things that he shared that I found significant is that he, he had actually offered Michael Jordan a major league contract. Not just a contract, a, a major league contract. And uh, Jerry Reinsdorf, who is the co-owner of both the Bulls and the White Sox, uh, didn't take too kindly to that. But, but Sandy called Jordan's agent the year he decided to play baseball and said, if Michael Jordan signs today with the Oakland Athletics, he, he will be on the big league roster which was interesting because I, I was like, that's like a piece of history I didn't know. But as I'm listening to the podcast, it was good. But it was like kind of superficial in, this, in the sports context. And I'm like, this team, specifically Patty, like we have the ability to reach out to Sandy and get him to come on. And when he came on and hear him speak about the definitive moment when Kirk Gibson, off of Dennis Eckersley, like every baseball fan <laughs> has a slide for that moment. Uh, th- the World Series that was impacted by the earthquake, uh, but what was really exciting was to hear him talk about things like decision science and where he kind of personalizes and humanizes the narrative around moneyball right It's not just about the analytics and he just so frequently right and conversationally just reinforces that the mental game of baseball is so significant and also to hear him share a few reflections about that maybe the analytics piece went too too far, which I thought was significant and then you know, at the time he was just—he was back in Oakland as Billy Bean's senior advisor. L- Little we do we know when you interviewed him uh, earlier this year that he, he was going to return to New York with a tremendous amount of latitude, uh, probably unrivaled resources going into next season with the New York Mets. It's exciting to see him coming coming back to New York at a time when I feel like our our city desperately needs strong leadership, not just in a, a civil sense, but um in a corporate sense is, as uh, well. It's really exciting to see him come back. And what's what's great about Sandy is, you know, sometimes Jimmy's like, oh, you know, I started on this path when I was like 52. I mean, Sandy's in, in, into, his, into his 70s now. And he's, you know, you talk about somebody who's incredibly sharp and engaged and for, for, firm in his convictions, but incredibly open-minded. Just shows us that um, more evidence that the mind is a muscle. And if we exercise it, we do great things. So it's really exciting i i love i love that, that that conversation that you had with uh with sandy
0: yeah i i don't think i can say i have a favorite episode i do love them all i think i'm most proud of the remembering timothy stackpole episode that one is um very powerful and humbling and it really i said it, it then i will say it again it was an honor to work on that but looking back at 2020 And when I go back to the episodes, I remember what was happening when I was recording them. And you can even hear like sirens out of my apartment window. And even the conversation with Sandy, like we all have roles and responsibilities outside of leadership under fire. And especially in the spring, everything just escalated so quickly, even the people who wanted to contribute to LUF. And so in the midst of like a chaotic day, I would have the opportunity to carve out an hour to talk to somebody like Sandy. And I swear, if you go back and you look at the raw audio of that interview, it's 58 minutes. Like that was my conversation with him. Like in the middle of the day, 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. in the middle of my lunch hour, I got to do that. That's amazing. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity.
2: Yeah. I, I think creating the <laughs> um, this archive, right, this, this body of knowledge, this in, in the form of a digital archive, and being able to go back and and listen to something, a conversation that that means something to you today and, and next year, it it might it will mean something entirely entirely right. different, but equally significant. I also love the fact that it's not lost on me how much work goes into the the remembering episodes each September. Yeah, but I I think I mean this. 2021 is going to be the 20th anniversary and and one of the, there's very few things that i can say are definitely part of our team's battle rhythm um given the fact that this is like a collateral duty for all of us and we all have full-time you know jobs and responsibilities but definitively say that one of the things that's important to all of us that's part of our yearly annual battle rhythm is that each september we will release an episode that um remembers one of the fallen and, and really serves to not only memorialize their legacy but and humanize the narrative around uh, not only what they did that fateful september morning but who they who they were
1: perfectly said
0: well gentlemen thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today and share all of this with our listeners
1: thanks patty thank you patty
0: and i'm looking forward to the year ahead amen <laughs>